This morning we hear from the Old and New Testament and listen to stories of human nature encountering God. Let us open our ears, our minds, our imaginations, and our hearts as we listen across time and space to hear God's wisdom in these words. From the book of Exodus, we hear the story of Moses' shining face. Moses came down from Mount Sinai as he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke with them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he could take off the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God. And now from the Gospel of Luke, we hear the story of the Transfiguration. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which was he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days, told no one any of the things that they had seen. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God.
want to take a moment to thank the babies of this congregation who proclaim the word, sometimes the clearest of all. There's so much this week to put into a sermon, and there is power in a pulpit. So let me be clear. If you, my sibling, are trans or non-binary, you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image and the glory of God. If you are a parent supporting your trans child, you are the glory of love in action. Typically, Transfiguration Sunday is a time to reflect on God's glory, how encounters with God change us, how we go forth to reflect it outwards, and so on. It's a beautiful and truthful message about how profoundly powerful and glorious God's love is, and yet it presumes an encounter with God. And lately I've found that many of us are instead asking where God even is in the first place. What about those of us who aren't brought up the mountain to meet God face to face? The Israelites who waited for Moses' return trips, the disciples and followers who stayed behind to doubt and question and hope. Those of us left at the base of the mountain might be thinking, of all the people who could use a direct encounter with God, of all the people who could be served by a chance at a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Creator, Jesus and Moses don't seem to really be at the top of that list. I mean, they already are cl close. They don't have doubts. They have God on speed dial. They already have a snap streak going. When do the doubters and questioners get to meet God? Aren't we the ones who could use it the most? Listen to the words of poet Marin Tiribasi. Transfiguration vision. The insiders grab pitons and crampons, some spiritual version of gear, and start to climb. But the boys back at base camp see only a flash of pyrotechnics, faintly hear a man with no sense of rhythm playing a tambourine. Is he even related to Miriam? And a baritone mumbling away at swing low, sweet chariot. But the voice their hearts are aching for, the wind just blows away while they greet an endless, rumpled multitude of needers. Your healing is important to us. Please stay in line. And even after the shiners and shriners return with their precious secrets, Jude and Thad, Tom, Nate, Andy, and the others are already the saints of the left out. Like any second January baby, only fourth grader without a birthday invitation, girl stood up for the senior prom, runner-up for the new job, ex-spouse who does not get married again, all aloner at coffee hour. Never mind the rehearsal, they tell the rest of us. At the end, it will be one hill fits all. 
There's a couple things going on here. Mortals being asked to trust in the promise of divine resolution and even revolution despite any evidence to support it other than shining faces and radical, even miraculous acts of love. Our doubts and our questions at the base of the mountain can make us feel even more alone, even more left out when we think they are ours alone. Where do the doubters and questioners belong? As a member reflected to me last week, and I now powerfully, paraphrase, we aren't a congregation that simply welcomes doubters and questioners. We are a congregation of doubters and questioners. We are a congregation that knows that doubt, uncertainty, questioning, they aren't stumbling blocks to faith, but are part and parcel of the faith experience. That is how we build our faith, how we live in our faith. I put, the con- I put a question out to the congregation on our Realm net- Network this week, asking what are some of the doubts or questions that live among us? And these are just some of what I received in response, submitted anonymously. After recently studying Job, I am struck on how, I'm stuck on how do you rationalize God's ever-abundant love when it feels like no matter how much we turn to God for help, Sometimes it feels like God only supports others in spite of us. Why are some people burdened with so many health issues? If God created everything, then logic would say that evil came from God too. I have often wondered if evil is inside all of us and we choose whether or not to let it out, or if evil is outside and we each choose whether or not to let it in. Why does God let bad things happen to really good people? What if the idea of God is just something our mind has made up so we'll feel better? So often God comes off as a bully to me. God creates humanity, gives us free will, condemns us for making wrong decisions, destroys the world with a flood to do a reset, and then has to send Jesus to his death to make us all acceptable again. It sounds like a bully to me. Where is God when bad things happen? Where is God when a loved one dies? How can these things be part of God's plan? When prayers are answered, we thank God, but when prayers are unanswered, it feels like there's an implied blame that either the person was not worthy of God's intervention or suffering and dying was God's will. I have trouble with that. When praying to God, is there a certain format we should use? Where is God when all the bad stuff is happening around us? How do we find God? Where is free will if you are free to choose whether or not to embrace God, but if you choose not to, then you're toast for eternity? That's really a choice? Well, I think there are a few people in history, and in case in point, currently wreaking destruction, who deserve to burn in hell for eternity. Eternity seems kind of overkill for sins committed in a single lifespan. How do we cope with feeling powerless against the evil in the world if we don't believe in hell? How do we understand the validity of other faiths from within our own? How do we find common truths? Why haven't the laws of physics and quantum mechanics explained love, if indeed love is the most powerful force in God's universe? How are we supposed to be grateful to God for giving us life when it's so damn hard? 
If we have to suffer because of sin, why bring us into the world at all? Why not just spare us in the first place? I doubt that the opportunity to be a part of a Christian church as adults will be there for children being born today. How do I explain my faith to non-believers when there's no hard evidence? When life gets complicated and I feel that I have lost my way and am powerless to know what my next action should be, I go to prayer. I pray for an understanding of God's will for me, for the strength to carry it out. How does this type of prayer relate to the prayers that we say when we pray, for example, for someone who is ill? In this case, we pray to God for a certain outcome, as in, I pray that John Doe will recover and be healthy again. So do I pray to understand God's will, whatever it turns out to be, or do I pray for a desired result? Is Christ the only answer? The Bible and Jesus' message have repeatedly been cited in defense of actions of oppression and hatred, which seem to be on the rise as the principles of democracy, fair play, and honesty appear under such attack. How can we at United Parish do our part to assert the Christian principles of charity and integrity to our neighbors? How can we see the good of God even through the bad of mental health and sickness? I have never had the experience of reaching out to God and feeling any response in return. The anthropologist in me often wonders if all cultures make up some kind of deity or religion in order to bear the hardships of life, to feel like someone is actually paying attention and that we actually matter. What if I'm wrong about eternity? I always just assume I am too simple of a life form to understand and that I keep wanting to have things make sense and be logical. But looking at the level of suffering in the world, God can feel really, really far away. Do you notice any common themes in these? Do you recognize any of your own thoughts, questions, fears? If you have never, ever had a single question or a shred of doubt about your faith, go ahead and raise your hand. Look around. Do you see any hands raised? If you're joining online, let me tell you that not a single hand is raised. Look around again. Really, look around. Get your, you know, get your neck stretch in today. Look at the faces of this congregation. Every face is a reflection of God's love. Every face in here tells a story of a person seeking to do the next right thing, even if they don't know what it is or what they're doing it for. Every face in here tells a story of a person seeking to encounter God somehow, and maybe that's where God shows up. Jesus reminds us, after all, that God's presence exists in community, the community of the Trinity, God exists, God's self in community, the Creator, the Christ, the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds us that wherever two or three are gathered, that is where God is. He could have said, well, God only shows up when you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt all of the things that your parents and foreparents and church taught you. But he didn't. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. When we grapple with doubts and questions, it can feel like a solitary struggle. When we realize that we aren't alone, that our neighbors, 
our friends, our pastors share in these struggles, we suddenly are part of a collective effort, a group search for meaning, a community wrestling match with our faith, with our traditions, with our God. We have people in our corner. As I wrote in the original post that solicited this list of questions and doubts, I can't provide any answers. One of my colleagues wrote in her sermon this morning, if you're looking to me for hope, I've got nothing. What does it mean to trust God when you've lost trust in the world? Some wise ones among us might advise that a congregation needs a pastor to project confidence. I think a role of pastor is to be a partner in the journey. I don't have all the answers. I yearn for them as much as any other mortal. But you can sure as hell bet that I am in your corner as we try to seek justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God together. Which reminds me, after the story in today's reading from the gospel, Jesus descends the mountain and heals a boy tormented by demonic possession. And after that, he warns his disciples that a life lived in service of God's love is so threatening to the tyrants of the world that it can be lethal, that he likely won't survive another year of it. And he says to live it anyway, to love anyway. And we don't need faith to put love to work. Reverend John Gage of the UCC Church in Needham wrote this week, Jesus' glory is the glory of love in action, not reflection. It's love put to work, healing the sick, binding up the brokenhearted, and lifting the lowly. That's what Jesus learned from his mama. That's what Luke is about. Want to know what the mountain means? Look in the valley. We don't need faith to put love to work. Knowing what events are likely to come and loving boldly anyway, that is the glory of love in action. Russian citizens publicly protesting war despite knowing it might be the last thing they do, putting love to work. Nurses manually ventilating NICU babies that they evacuate into a basement bomb shelter, putting love to work. Teachers risking their jobs and livelihoods to protect the dignity privacy, and even lives of their trans students, putting love to work. Pope Benedict XV, nearly bankrupting the Vatican during World War I by sending all of its funds to humanitarian efforts, freeing tens of thousands of prisoners of war, putting love to work. Every station in the Underground Railroad, every name added to Oscar Schindler's list, every countercultural act of affirmation, hospitality, and healing, that is the glory of love in action. We may lament or rage against the forces in this world that make radical love such a dangerous task. We may curse any God who could let this happen, and yet, Some part of us, of our souls, is called towards radical love, reminding us that we don't need faith to put that love to work. As the choir leads us in a song whose words were found on the wall of a cell in a concentration camp, 
I invite you to come forward as you feel moved, to light a candle on this table, to say a prayer or set an intention for where you need to see or where you need to be the glory of love in action in whatever valley you find yourself in. Amen.